Welcome to episode 15. This is the Learning Curve podcast. I am Bob Bowden with Choice Media, joined my, by my intrepid co-host, Kara. Kara, are you there? I am here and I am intrepid, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We are uh, immersed deep into the holiday season. Uh, it is, uh, f- it's Friday. Are you filled with the holiday spirit? It's December 20th. We have uh, New Year's Eve coming up, all that. Are you... Uh, are you uh, I'm filled joyous? with a couple things, Bob. Let me tell you real real quick. Okay. I have three children okay. and a husband and myself, yeah. and all of us had the flu this past week. Oh, my. You know what? You Despite mentioned- responsibly being vaccinated against the flu, I might add, we all had the flu. <laughs> so now that we are, now that I had um, three kids back to school today, I am, at, now I am ready to welcome in the holiday spirit. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's just, so you're on the mend. We can pick the, the glass half full version of your story. You're, I'm you're, on the mend. It's, yeah, that's the good thing about, about being that ill is that when you feel good, you feel really good after, right? All right. Well, I, I, uh, I'm glad that you're uh, feeling better. Um, I, I had a little bit of, a little bit of a toothache this week, but I'm just saying that so I can match you. Like you, I'm like I'm the sorry, kind of person Bob. you tell a story. Now I have to say I'm sick too. Like I'd be like, Oh, well, I'm um, sick also. You know, that, that's a man thing. That's a man's yeah. thing. <laughs> Thanks for that. We love it. Okay, so let's see. What do you got for the stories of the... Actually, we're doing the stories of the year. You're That's it. We're doing the stories of the year because That's, when you when you're we're entering a new decade here, Bob, this is a, this is a big deal. So, we and, put, and before you said the Choice Media website has has demoed our top ten of the year on the ChoiceMedia.tv website. No top ten like it, ladies That's and right. gentlemen. Or it is one of a kind. Media smartphone app. So it looks really good too, I have to say. I think the the visuals are are great. You guys did a great job. So, but um I had the privilege of choosing. Bob, you you said to me this week, Carol, you choose. And usually we we share the we share the burden, but it was I I enjoyed doing this. So, thank you very much. First story of the week from the lens, New Orleans becomes first major American city without traditional schools. So, this article is talking about the fact that New Orleans finally after, you know, um, the the district technically authorizes just a, it's a system of charters now um, since the recovery school district was first implemented after Hurricane Katrina. And now um, at long last, they've finally seen the last of um, what some would call traditional schools, but let's just say the last district school to convert to charter status. All and, charter districts, all charters all the time in the city of New Orleans. All charters all the time, which means, you know, it, in my mind, one of the reasons this is great is because this should be like no biggie. I mean, we know that um, that schools are working when we when we stop talking so much about governance structures because, right, that's what charter schooling is. It's a governance structure. And and I'll just a couple a couple comments on this, and and you chime in here at any point, oh, yeah. um, Bob. But the fact of the matter is, is that what do we know about New Orleans? We know number one is this report points out that um, that. Charter schools have by and large been good in terms of academic outcomes and access for the students and families of New Orleans. Now, they're not always perfect, um, especially this is Wait, true. Wait, right? you... oh, They're I'll, not always let perfect. Let me say it again. Charter schools are not always perfect. But that's why charter schooling works is because the, the structure that is charter schooling, the, the charter school innovation was to shine a light on the schools that aren't working and close them down. So part of what this article talks about is the fact that it was just last year that um, that the district actually took over two failing charter schools, wanted to prevent one of them from closing. And so made it, you know, took it back under the wings of the 
traditional air quotes district and they ended up closing it anyway. So what part of this story is here for me, part of the success story is that the charter model holds schools accountable, shines a light on what's not working so that we can indeed close schools, even charter schools when they fail to perform something that most traditional systems do not do. Kids need better options. And when we shine a light and we close schools that aren't serving kids, then kids have better options as painful as it may be. I should say. Yes. Well, New Orleans, uh, most notable for the fact that I was born there. But uh, I would say that it's us barely in the United States, really. I mean, they have parishes, for goodness I'm not, sake. I'm not giggling. But I'm glad. I didn't know you were born in New Orleans. I know. I know. Yeah. It's like it's, you get a conditional uh, uh, passport. It's just like you're it barely American. It does a little bit cooler, I got to say. All right. I'm All sorry. Right. But, but that said, it, in my opinion, New Orleans should be the first two words out of everybody's mouth when they hear the regular establishmentarian pushback on cherry picking or like uh, it's siphoning funding away from public schools. Someone says that the first thing that I now say is, oh, well, that's funny because New Orleans is all charter schools. I don't know. Oh, it's you really just cherry pick the very top, most elite, uh, smartest kids in charter schools. And that's the only kids that go to charters. Funny because every single kid in New Orleans goes to a charter school. You say that that stops people like I've tried all of the other answers to that uh, kind of old chestnut, that sort of talking point of the establishment or whatever. This one works the best. People have no idea uh, what to say when you tell them. The the most I can say, in fact, this happened about a month ago. I was talking with this woman and she's, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the typical kind of... uh, you know, cherry picking kind of siphon money away kind of thing. And I'm and I I trot out the old New Orleans example, old meaning just this school year. And she's and all they can say is, oh, really, I didn't know New Orleans was all charter. And you go, oh, yeah, they sure oh, are. Yeah. So anyway. And D.C., more than 50 percent charter. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got we've got lots of communities that are trending this way. Right. Right. Because but you can't say there's any cherry picking if every single kid is in a charter school. Uh, now, that said, just last month, they had the new Louisiana rankings for schools and districts and and it didn't look so good. 35 of the 72 schools in New Orleans were rated uh, D or F. And yeah. so and six of those 35 have been closed, actually, uh, from those rank- rankings that came from last year. So yeah. anyway, it's not always the, like, to, to your point. The whole district got a C rating by the state. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's room for improvement survey, in the accountability system, too. There's room yeah. for improvement. So every, but, but, you every know. school in the survey. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, Every survey of parents, I'm going to try to say, since Katrina has said that in general parents prefer this system to what existed before when they had examples of, for example, there was this uh, 2003 high school valedictorian in New Orleans who failed the state high school graduation test. She was the valedictorian and she failed the very easy state high school graduation test. And that was kind of all a pre-Katrina. Yeah, and nobody, nobody wants to go back to that. So, you know, (laughs) it's any, anything is up from there, but this is, this is a big up and the end and student achievement has absolutely improved. Yes. And now, so for our second story of the week now. Story of the year. Story of the year. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Story of the year. Story of the decade. (laughs) Story of the year. (laughs) And I can I can already feel the tension rising on this one, Bob, because I have a feeling you and I might have different opinions on this. But from the Sacramento Bee, new law banned schools from suspending disruptive kids. So California that had already made moves to stop suspensions, um, now now clarifying that children who are labeled as disruptive, this is children in grades kindergarten through eight, um, for a period of five years, the state has said that schools can no longer suspend kids. So the argument about this, I know you're going to give it to me, you're going to say, oh, it's one size fits all. 
It's you go can't ahead, just, just slap that solution on, Kara. But yeah. what I say is, the as a former teacher, number one, there is there are so few times, especially with young children, when suspension is really an appropriate avenue. When kids are acting up in school, it's because they need something. They need they're bored, or they simply need something. Maybe they have a, a need that is not being met. And suspension is really an easy way out for the adults in the building. And we need to find ways. And I think that this could. Let's see if this experiment works. What's oh. what will happen? I know some will predict. Well, the schools will just all they'll be violent and horrible places. Right, right. But I think. What, what might come out of this is that we might actually find um, alternatives. Now, for some schools, it won't go well and it'll be hard. Mm. But in others, we might find alternatives to suspension that are worth replicating, that are worth having a look at. And the one sure. last thing I'll say about this is I think that when we rely upon suspension as a tool for kids, one of the things we are also failing to do is find the educational model, the school, the delivery mechanism, whatever it is, that fits different kids' needs because all kids need something different and disruptive right. kids are telling us that they need right. something different. I see this as an opportunity. Right. So yeah, may, maybe this uh, one size fits all from a faraway state capital idea to uh, coerce local people to do things one way because whatever the situation on the ground is, well, ignore that. We're going to follow a directive from people who've never met any of these kids. Maybe that'll work. I have I th I have a different title for this. <laughs> I've never a headline. I have a, my own headline for this. It's called "A New Hero to Disruptive, Uncontrollable, and Violent Students Across California." Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom. He's the hero. He. They should be all hail Governor looks Newsom. Like a hero. He yeah. We. You know. And so this is. And so it's to me. It's similar to like a, a make everything legal theory of crime reduction. Hey, look, we've reduced crime 100 percent thanks to our new Make Everything Legal initiative, which, by the way, is my philosophy on drug possession crimes or whatever. But anyway, but but for the bully who I'm not sure if I follow the connection, but we'll go with it. I, I like knowing your philosophy on drug possession. It's yeah, yeah. good. OK, but, yeah, I'm, I'm all the way libertarian on that. But for the bully, for on the that. bully who punches his classmates in the face every day. Guess what, Bluto? You don't have to worry about school suspensions anymore. Cluttering up your permanent record. Restorative justice advocates <laughs> have won. And there will be, you know, uh, the, oh, no worries, in-school punishments, you know. So I would say, great, California, the same, uh, the same minds who have given you freedom to shoot up and defecate on the sidewalks of, of Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, because basically behavioral consequences have been ruled the same thing as cruelty, have now taken over school districts where they're basically saying, yeah, do anything. Beat someone up every day. We will never suspend you. Spurious connection, Bob. This is spurious connection, but I get, I get that this one gets you, gets you a little bit um, worked it's, up. But it's I, very, you know, it's a very, the con the connection is very simple. It's a, it's a consequences-free paradigm. I'd that's, like to that's take this back to the policy perspective from it because in in your diatribe, I did find a little kernel to hang on to here. And that is from the policy wonk in me says what the state's not considering is the fact what's going to like. So let's watch what happens with in school suspensions, for example. Let's watch what happens. Um, what are going to be the. Um, the unintended, unintended consequences of this that not even like you could predict, Bob. And, and how are we going to mitigate those from a policy perspective? What are schools going to come up with? But yeah. I don't know. I, I know you're not well, moving to California start, any day start, soon. 
why not start a no suspensions charter school in California and see how it goes? Or, or maybe maybe even if you want to take one school, do a little trial. I don't know, something like that. But no, because no, let's just slap it on the whole because, state at once. Because the black and brown children of this country that are disproportionately being penalized for behaviors that don't warrant suspension, um, they don't have time to wait for, for a charter school experiment. This is That's how people violate answer. one of Bob's rules. They say things like that. The black and brown kids who are disproportionately suspended and, and the, and the, the Bob are. rule, the Bob rule is every school discipline policy must evaluate not just what's best for the bad kids getting suspended, but also what's best for the good kids. Every rule must. This may seem simplistic. Does Bob's rule but, take but, into account the hyperbole around how much good kids are adversely affected? Because I think that sometimes this gets really blown out of proportion. Yeah, I think there are all kinds of good black and brown kids who don't want the bullies in who don't want the bullies in the classroom, who don't want those bullies to be treated with uh, kid gloves or uh, you know overly permissive uh, discipline policies. Because those good black and brown kids, educations are being disruptive, right, and we don't. Gonna- we're we gonna, don't tend to study those kids and be care about those kids. We tend to study and optimize the system for benefiting the bad kids. Who, the, well, so the bad kids tend to be the neediest kids because, as I said at the front, what they're expressing is a need that is not being met. But I think that it's a big leap to go from, um, you know, all there all of these other poor children that aren't being served because all the attention is on bad kids. You don't know what other solutions are going on inside school except for suspension. Because let me tell you one thing. When you suspend kids, do you know what happens, Bob? They go away for a little while and then they come back. And the behavior continues. So instead, why aren't we incenting teachers to find solutions that will be helpful for all of the kids, meaning interrupting the behaviors that are disruptive in the first place? And you can't do that when you're just sending a kid home to not be educated. Because what, are, what are kids doing at home when they're suspended? They're, they're sitting in front of a TV if they're lucky, right? Okay. And they're doing something else if they're not. That can be. That can be. I'm we not. Knew, I'm not we knew saying we would agree to disagree I, on this I, one. I am. I am not telling kid uh, schools to suspend kids any more than I'm telling them not to suspend kids. What I'm saying is, don't have a one five one size fits all state capital Sacramento pass governor signed policy as some forced overlay on all these individual teachers and in schools making their individual decisions with their individual knowledge of what's on the ground in their places because we're smarter than they are and we're better than they are. We're more elite well, than the they are. Well, if had as many choices as the teachers. In the and the schools, then I might be I might be a little bit more able to get on board with that. But unfortunately, what you've got kids who is they have no choice to choose to go to your charter school with no discipline, right? They, they there are too many kids that are trapped in a system that says you're going to have to do it this way. So they need to have they we need to be thinking about those children as well. Oh. Um, I'm going to move us along here because here's we've got another favorite topic of yours, Bob. Oh, good. I, I'm pretty sure. Okay. So we can, I mean, so here's, here's an opportunity for you to talk about the quit, quit preempting me, Kara. <laughs> and its influence on education. So on, from U.S. News, um, this is, I believe this was Lauren Camera, right? Congressionally mandated report confirms much of federal education funding is wastefully spent and unfairly allocated. Surprise, surprise, right? No. I have to say, now, Bob, you might be able to guess that 
I'm pretty cool with federal education funding. I think, listen, for the most part, um, it's, it's a, you know, we go back to um, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, part of the War on Poverty, 1965. We look at the intent of what that was supposed to do. Definitely some unintended consequences, but the intent was we were supposed to send money to the communities, to the students who needed the mo- who needed it most. Um, we've learned a lot over time about, about what money can and can't buy. We've also, to the point of this article, learned a lot over time about the perverse incentives that are sometimes at play when federal money is part of the pot. We need to remember that most school districts now are totally dependent upon federal money for part of their funding. It's only about 10% would be a very rough estimate, right, of generally of overall school spending. But um, but schools depend on that, which is why states would threaten to pull out of No Child Left Behind, for example, and then realize how much title money they would be forfeiting, right? But what this does is it, it really shines a light on something that we've known for a while that obviously hasn't changed. And that is that Title I money is not always going to the right places. It's supposed to be going to schools with concentrations of poverty. Yeah, because because schools- when the funding source is far away or distributed, then the oversight and how the money is spent also gets immensely distributed. I've seen this in local school boards too, even where I live, where if, if, a grant, if a grant's coming from the state or for the federal government, it's like, oh, no one cares if you waste that money. That's just, that's a grant from far away. We'll just blow all that money. No one cares. Is that spent badly? Well, I don't know, whatever. It's not our money. It came from some other, you know, basically it's this, you know, we collect all this money from the states, send it to DC. They hire like, you know, thousands of People at the you know U.S. Department of Education and, and hundreds of lawyers. I think thousands of lawyers actually at the U.S. Department of Education. They all have to have like you know vacation homes and cars and, and it's, it's you know they have to all have big salaries and you know afford D.C. and all that stuff. Then then they send us though those people are they are overlords if you'll pardon the expression. Will send send a portion of the money back to the states you know and then how often it's wasted is. Frequently. Why? Because there's not a federal monitor standing around over the shoulder of every person writing a check with that federal money, because a lot of people writing the checks with that federal money don't care if it's wasted and no one cares if it's wasted. Oh, I think that that's a little bit. No, I don't agree. What I think is is at issue here is just that the formula simply doesn't work. And and the other thing is there was there was a time, in fact, under um, after No Child Left Behind first came out where they were saying, no, we are actually going to concentrate Title One monies where it's needed most in schools. They, they raised the poverty threshold. We need to get back to that. We also need to get back to accountability. There needs to be more transparency. So, you know, as this article points out, this report is like it's like untangling some yeah wild the, sick, the, the Obama of- school improvement grants for example the Obama administration did their own study of of that and found that all of these many millions of dollars hundreds of millions spent in school in school improvement grants basically did no did nothing they improved well, no right. schools. Well, right, but that's why we need to be. We probably need more accountability for what is happening with the money. Right, we, need we need more accountability more for more where the money's going, around. and more transparency around what is happening with the money. That'll turn Who is everything it serving around, and how. <laughs> all right, that'll turn everything around. Thank you for that for care. So, all right, we're going to have, I guess, a little commercial break, and then coming up after this, our guest Will Fitzhugh. We will be delighted to be interviewing. He's the founder of the Concord Review, and we'll tell you more about it. And we'll talk to him right after this. (music) 
Welcome back. We are delighted to uh, talk to Will Fitzhugh now. He's the founder of the Concord Review, uh, which is uh, has uh, over 100 issues since 1987. It's a review of high school essays. They've published nearly 1,300 history essays, averaging 8,500 words each by students from not just 45 states across the country since 1987, We can all wonder what the other five states are, but also 40 (laughs) countries, 40 different countries. This is pretty much the top. uh, It's it's the Olympics, you might say, in high school essays. Mr. Fitzhugh, thank you for being our guest on the Learning Curve podcast. Thank you. So let's see. Uh, your publication is it's kind of amazing. It's unique among for those who don't know, it's uh, among the K through 12 education uh, publications. It exclusively exclusively focuses on high quality student writing in history from not just, as I said, around the U.S., but around the world. So I wanted to begin by just asking you, you have kind of a lens of this. What is the state of American students writing from your perspective in 2019, about to be 2020? Uh, or is it that since you only ever see the top 0.1% anyway, maybe it's hard for you to have much of a lens on the overall trends in American student writing? But you tell us, how well do American students write? Well, the measures of uh, student writing done by uh, American college testing find that writing is in bad shape. Professors routinely complain that the students can't write. And every college has a semester or a year of remedial writing, which they usually don't call that. But one of my concerns is that reading and writing in the high schools are a monopoly of the English department which means that the reading is fiction and the writing is personal, creative, or the five-paragraph essay. So the history department, a social studies department, is simply handed over to the English department all responsibility for reading and writing in the schools. Oh, interesting. So in your view, that's a, that's a problem in that, uh, I guess, uh, if content were more closely integrated, meaning history content, for example, with also writing skills, if those were more integrated rather than separated, it would do students good. Well, it seems to me that if colleges are going to ask students to read nonfiction books and to write term papers, it would make sense to have high school students read nonfiction books and write term papers, but that's not what they're doing. So the vast majority of American public high school students graduate without ever having read a single history book or written a research paper. Yeah, I have to say your point as a former professor, um, your your point is well taken because one of the things, and I'm constantly trying to work on my own writing as the good people at Pioneer can attest to, it, it also has a long way to go. But as a former professor, the it, the, the five-point essay, the five-pair, it just was overwhelmingly um, a horrible, an exercise in frustration. And um, our students would certainly go through remedial writing courses, but in order to get them to convey um, what they thought or any sort of analysis, because of course I was teaching education policy, was often an arduous exercise, so much so that toward the end of my um, teaching career at the university, I um, would just ask students to write, produce one paper throughout the semester that we would consistently refine over time because I saw part of my job as being able to make them good communicators. So there's a question in here somewhere. I've always thought um, 
that writing is thinking. And, uh, and that's something that I used to tell my students. I'm wondering what you think about that. And also, I'd like you to weigh in on this notion that you've, you've had that students should write a page a year for every sort of grade that they're in. So one page for first grade is, is in terms of a research paper. Can you tell me more about that idea and how writing in this way develops kids as thinkers? Well, nobody's doing it for one thing. So, but I'm often interested in comparing our attitudes to academic work with our attitudes to athletics. You can start uh, Pop Warner football and, and Little League baseball when you're nine or 10, but you don't start writing term papers until you're a freshman in college. So I sometimes think, you know, if a college coach say the basketball coach got his, first of all, he would never do this because he goes out and recruits people, but somehow the admissions department d delivers him a team the way they deliver students to the professors. And he takes them out on the, on the court and finds they've never learned how to, to dribble, pass, or shoot. And that's basically what happens when professors assign nonfiction books and term papers. The kids panic and what often happens when we have a, a Concord Review author is discovered in the dorm, the other kids come and say, oh, you've written a paper, please tell us how to do it. <laughs> uh, so so I'm going to offer you a little devil's advocacy. I mean, can, can you handle that? I'm going to sure. go do a little trolling, as the kids would say. Let's all right. Here, here we go. A little game we'll do. Writing long form essays is a dead art form. Okay, it's been replaced by social media. No one is going to need long-form writing skills anymore than they'll need skills of wood barrel making or buggy whip manufacturer, just as spell check is obsolete, obsoleted spelling bees, just as GPS is obsoleted compass reading. A skill like long-form writing for that skill, time has marched on and rendered this kind of deep writing no more useful for the future than an abacus or a slide rule manipulation skill. So, <laughs> Mr. Fitzhugh, what do you say to that? Well, I love to say that that even scientists and engineers need to learn to read and write. And usually when I mention that to a scientist or an engineer, they say, you're exactly right. And the difference between a good engineer and a bad engineer is that the good one knows how to read and write. But one of the things I've been surprised by over the last 32 years is I, when I run into lawyers – who say that they have reading remedial writing courses in their law firm for the, so that they, new associates can be brought uh, to the level of, of a, where they're able to write to write briefs. Wow. Apparently, they're very poor writing in law school as well. So there, there are a lot of places where, <laughs> in politics and in law and in history and in, and in think tanks or whatever, where people have to be able to write at length. And but and just a little more in the social media idea that we're now trained to do, you know, 280 character tweets or just little blurby, quick little Instagram posts or little Facebook mentions. Hey there, smiley face. Uh, what? Yeah, the writing has changed. That almost you could you know it's argued by many that the brain is changing because the way social media is affecting communication. What do you say to that? Is that true? Well, no, it isn't true. And of course there. Are one of the things about companies that, that make money from tweets and, and from you know things like Facebook is every time a student picks up a book or starts to write a paper, the companies feel like that's 
that's time away from buying their products. So anything the company can do to, to get people thinking about products instead of academic work, they'll do it. Well, and it, it must also not be true in some cases, because certainly what one of the notes we have here say that increasingly some of the Concord Review's best authors are coming from Asian countries. So in, in some places, you know, um, language of tweets and Instagram must not rule. I wonder what you're seeing in students from other countries um, that are being published uh, that you're not in, in American students. What do you think is going on in those places? Well, the thing that impresses me is that in many, in most um, East Asian countries, the focus of students is on the state exam because the results of that tell whether, whether they can get into a good university or not. So I'm very impressed with the Asian students who send me really wonderful, long, serious uh, history research papers, uh, not only because they're going above and beyond the need to get ready for the state exam, but also, which is so easy to forget, they're writing in their second language. I had a wonderful paper on on uh, James Clerk Maxwell's theory of, of light by a, a, a Korean kid who's now been accepted early at Harvard. And I, I mentioned that to someone, and I, I mentioned the thing about second language, and I said... You know, I wonder how many American students are writing history research papers in the history of science in Korean. <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, one of our top 10 stories of the year was on woke culture becoming part of American public schools. And I'm wondering if you're, when you, when you see kids uh, talk about history and talk about the U.S. role of history, are you seeing a change in how America is perceived by high school students today. Well, as you know, Howard Zinn's uh, communist history of the United States is now has now sold almost three million copies. So I don't know of any other country in which the schools teach the students to hate their country. <laughs> but for some reason, we, we like to do that. The yeah. other thing, the other thing now is there's a big push for civics. But what I like to say about the civics people is that they walk into a room of students and they say, okay, kids, step away from those books and no one gets hurt. Right. Exactly. That, that censorship kind of is, is kind of mad. It's a rebirth of it. They want them out in the street protesting. They don't want them learning history. <laughs> right. Well, I think, it, I think in some schools, uh, history is still being taught quite well. I would, at least I'm going to hold out hope for that. But I'm wondering, um, too, if you can comment on, um, I would love to know about your, your favorite essay. Is there, is there one that you just hold, hold close that you're, that you'll never forget, or maybe it was one of the first ever published. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there, there really is a whole bundle of those, but I, I'd like to tell you about a, a, an essay I got from a Japanese girl who's now a lawyer in, in Maryland, I think. But um, when she was about 15, she saw a picture of the kamikaze pilots. And she thought, you know, these, these, are, these people are my age. What made them commit suicide? So she spent the next three years visiting every museum in Japan on the kamikaze pilots, and she visited families of survivors. And there were some pilots whose plane conked out, so they, they didn't get to kill themselves. And she talked to some of them. 
And she wrote, I, I think, eleven or 12,000 word paper. And I got, gave her an Emerson Prize. But the thing that impressed me most about it, I think, was that at the end of three years and at the end of writing this wonderful paper to answer her question, why did they do it? Her conclusion was, I don't understand. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so before we have to let you go, uh, uh, Mr. Fitzhugh, I recommend to you uh, two podcasts then, uh, Dan Carlin's Hard- Hardcore History and The Learning Curve with Kara Kandel. Those are my two recommendations for you. But that said, we want to thank you very much for your time. For those interested in uh, more about the Concord Review, you can go to tcr.org. Isn't that the correct website? That's correct. tcr.org is the Concord Review, and we want to thank Will Fitzhugh for his time on our podcast, The Learning Curve. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. All right, so now we uh, only have what's left is, I guess, uh, Christmas and uh, New Year's to do, Carrie. You know, we sometimes do our commentary of the week and our tweet of the week, but we maybe thought a co- one commentary of the year or a tweet of the whole year would be kind of weird. So instead, I would I thought I would just ask you if you're very good at wrapping presents. Like, are you one of those people your presents are perfect? Oh, no, I'm horrible. Wrapped? Oh, you, you, oh, really? Oh, I'm, wrapped. I haven't even begun shopping. I mean, who, who has time for this? No. Um, well... It, I am I'm terrible at, at wrapping gifts. Um, I will outsource it if I can. And other than other than that, it's just sort of you get what you get and you don't get upset. I'm more, you know, I'm really looking forward to um, just New Year's. I that's that's sort of my jam, right? A good time with some just small circle of close friends hanging out and being able to sleep in the next morning, uh, okay. hot cocoa with the kids. And you do, uh, you and, do the midnight you know, still? You do the five, four, three, two. Yeah, I do that right about nine p.m. Yeah, <laughs> right about nine p.m. And then <laughs> it's time for really. Bed. All right, and then but and then what do you do? You do the Christmas carols? You sing like Christmas? Can you sing, Kara? I don't no, know. Pa, this are about. you are you assuming that I celebrate Christmas? No, I do. I do celebrate Christmas. Um, yeah. I, can I sing? My children would tell you that is a resounding no. Oh, okay. Um, I, you know, I I could if I had a couple glasses of wine, I could probably like show you show you my skills here. I I don't know. That's a, I was the the school lead in Bye Bye Birdie in eighth grade. So well, it sounds like you can't sing. I mean, How well. Well, in eighth grade, I could. But but enough about me. Enough about me. What are what are your holiday plans, Bob? Uh, look, I'm I'm looking for. So I'm not really that big on the on the New Year's resolutions, but I, I am I am gonna. I do have kind of a few. I'm kind of trying to do, but I I, I don't know. Like I, I it's it's always so depressing when you break them, right? But you know, it's going to the yeah, gym. Yeah, like the next day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, but uh, but anyway, I yeah I, I I it's only once or twice I've actually tried. I've actually chosen to go to bed before midnight i i do t- try to do the midnight thing with the new year's uh, usually i don't know why i feel like i should or so like i'm gonna miss it what am i missing it's there's nothing to miss i don't know miss- i'm always awake till midnight and then it's like oh okay so that was just like all the other ones right that was good sometimes you do miss i do have to tell you i am the mother of a baby um my my third son lucas was born on technically on new year's day but a little bit tmi lucas started coming right when the ball dropped so there there you go and was bored about an hour later so sometimes it is worth staying up for midnight only rarely but that one i would say definitely worth it well that's an interesting well well gentle listeners we have some exciting news for you though we'll be back uh in the new year 2020 with our first guest will be the great lance izumi lance izumi uh one actually the only person on earth who appeared both in waiting for superman and the cartel 
uh, documentary. And he also has his own pretty great podcast. So oh, there yeah, you go. looking forward to that. And, and also, Bob, looking forward in the new year to many more stories on which we can just absolutely agree on everything, right? <laughs> we will see. That's going to be our uh, tease, as they say in broadcasting, to keep our... Happy holidays and happy New Year's, years, everyone. Yes. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's. We'll see you in 2020, folks.